This is an ABC podcast. Throughout his 30s, Russell Cheek was a musician and a performer in a group called the Castanet Club. For a decade, he poured himself into the group, touring and performing around the country. And then in the early 90s, the band breaks up. And that hits Russell. Hard. I think this is where I had my midlife crisis. I remember sitting in a car, having parked my car, I was supposed to go into someone's house, and I just sat in the car and I thought, the band is now finished. Um, I don't have a, a partner in life. I'm 40. What do I have to look forward to here? Not, not, a, not, a, not a whole lot. In this moment, sitting alone in his car, Russell's pinched by the past and by a murky future. What does he have to show for it all? And what on earth is he going to do next? And then, somewhere from the depths of his sadness, the tiniest glimmer of a plan emerges. It was desperation. And I thought, uh, well, I'm going to ride away to Sail of the Century. Sail of the Century. I'm Elizabeth Kulas. Welcome to Days Like These. To become a champion on the greatest TV quiz show this country has ever seen, that takes more than just smarts. You also need patience, strategy and the ability to still the mind in the middle of a frenzied battery of questions. So does Russell have what it takes to win the jackpot and answer the ultimate, who am I? Russell Cheek grew up in a working-class neighbourhood in Newcastle of the 60s. He was always a bright kid. His dad had taught him to read before he started kindergarten. And he liked learning, made it into a selective public high school. And Russell had always had quite incredible recall. Like, he can still remember to this day the number on his family's membership card at the local grocery store from 1960. It was um, C3430. (laughs) And people are often surprised by the kind of memory that I do have. But I think part of that is growing up as an only child and living in your own creation. <laughs> For years, you live in your own created world. And uh, so everything that comes in, you take a record of it. Russell's parents encouraged him to make the most of his gifts. They were proud, but they weren't pushy. That meant the academic side of things. But Russell also loved music, sport, languages. Most of all, Russell liked a challenge. So when he reaches year 11, no one's that surprised when he sets his sights on the BHP High School Quiz. BHP High School Quiz. It was a seminal televisual examination of the the knowledge of um, high school pupils in Newcastle during the 60s and 70s. Is Scotland Yard in Scotland? Malcolm? No, no, it is not in Scotland, it's in London. Each week, two Year 11 students go head-to-head on this teen quiz show. Pretty much every kid in Newcastle knows about it. And a boy at Russell's school had won the year before. So ever since, Russell had figured, why couldn't I do that? I guess I was a little nerdy, but I was motivated. I thought, I can win this thing, and if I win, I will win $600 cash for myself and my mum and dad, which would not go astray, and I could win a trip around Australia. But stepping onto the set in the TV studio on that first day, Russell realises that the experience in front of the camera is going to be completely different 
to watching along at home. It was cold. It was cavernous. It was intimidating. He can't see beyond the blinding studio lights to the audience beyond. So Russell just stands there, spotlit and terrified. And then there's the competition. And, you know, you had these private school kids in blazers and a lot of them were, they were up themselves and I was kind of an underdog. You know, you felt like you were the bottom of the rung, you know, until you proved yourself by winning half a dozen games or something, you were, you were bottom of the pile. But far from putting him off, feeling that fear while he's standing on the set, feeling those odds stacked against him, these things only motivate him to work harder. Russell's going to throw everything at trying to win this thing. And that means every waking minute. And actually, some sleeping ones too. This is where I kind of learnt to study and to make my brain come alive. I started sleep learning. I used to make tapes. I had an old-fashioned reel-to-reel tape recorder and... uh, I put a speaker under my pillow at night so I'd fall asleep listening. What are the colours of the Hungarian flag? I still remember at the time summarising World Book Encyclopedia, you know, for, for salient facts that might be asked. Who was the first American to walk in space? I devised a method of asking myself a question. What is the highest mountain in Australia? Then leaving a gap of maybe a second and a half to see if I could chime in with the answer myself. And then I'd provide the answer for myself on the tape. Mount Kosciuszko. So I put in the hard yards. So Russell studies at lunchtime in the school library, at home in his room, in bed when he's asleep. And he keeps showing up to that set, winning, week after week. But it does take its toll. You'd never get the game out of your head, even though you were back at school for two weeks before you had to come in and tape the next show. You, you'd feel tense. At night, I'd still be feeling, well, what's going to happen, you know? But Russell battles through, beating one student, then another, then another again. You know, game after game, I would just keep winning and then I uh, finally got to the final. And were you up against a private schoolboy in the end with his blazer and his shiny pins? Yes. No, he did have a blazer. He wore a jumper, but he still loved himself. Russell can feel his brain pulling on all the memorised facts that he's squirrelled away. Egyptian rivers, the biographical details of an English king, the name of the Malaysian Prime Minister. With each question, his brain searches at high speed and he pushes and he thinks and he tries to stay calm and eventually he makes it over the line. And, of course, in in those situations, you get a, a wonderful tension release. And I remember that afternoon just hanging out in the sun and feeling this, just a real sense of achievement that I'd, I'd won this show against all odds. To the outside world, after that, Russell is riding high. He wins the prize money. His mum isn't well enough to travel. But he flies around Australia with his dad, sees every capital city. But after all the celebrations die down, Russell makes a private promise to himself. The tension of it was such a hideous experience that I took a vow that I would never put myself under that kind of pressure again, ever. And I know you might think at 16 it's very early to take a vow, but I was so certain I took a vow I wasn't going to do that again. Russell finishes school and the 70s begin. He moves to Sydney, studies German at uni, but fairly soon 
he realises he's way more interested in life outside of academia. There's just so much to absorb. He joins share houses, discovers yoga and meditation, lives on a communal farm, plays music, moves to Paris to study theatre and mime. And in the early 80s, he returns to Newcastle and he starts up his band with a group of nine or ten collaborators. They call themselves the Castanet Club. This is sort of a short film with music. <laughs> I always call it a comedy cabaret big band. We were the rat bag end of the theatre spectrum. We were a very, very skilled rabble of musicians and performers. <laughs> the Castanet Club is uniquely Australian. It's funny and irreverent and a little off the wall. And they're constantly taking the piss. Well, hello. You must be the people who are interested in finding out about the Castanet Club. Well, here they are. Like, Russell's best-known character is modelled on a roadie for Jimmy Barnes. And through the 80s, if the Castanet Club was coming through your city or town, you didn't want to miss it. Russell, I was wondering, if I was sitting in the audience at a Castanet Club gig, what am I experiencing? Gradually, on a scale over the night, you are experiencing surprise, excitement, hilarity, and by the end of the night, you feel that you are part of our family. We infected our audiences with that sense of family relationship and, and love, yeah. And it, it, was, it was extraordinary. The act takes them all around the country, to the Adelaide Festival, to the Last Laugh in Melbourne, even to the Edinburgh Fringe. They make a movie. You know, people loved us to death. We were called the Toast of Newcastle. Not the kind that you put butter on and, you know, put in the toaster, but the toast <laughs> the in... champagne kind. Metaphoric, yeah. <laughs> exactly, the champagne kind. <laughs> the Castanet Club is Russell's life, and he loves being part of it. The group's developing new material, hoping to make another film. It's a rich and amazing run. Until it isn't anymore. It was like someone's vacuuming the lounge room and someone else pulls the plug out of the wall of the vacuum cleaner. And that sound, that was how I felt emotionally. People wanted to start doing other things and it was just sadness. I, I felt very sad and I, I felt a great sense of loss. And alongside the emotional and the creative loss, there was also the practical reality of his situation. Russell was broke. You know, we, we came out with the shirts on our backs. We had nothing. We had lived hand to mouth and survived for 10 years. And I thought, well, what am I going to do here? How am I going to get money? So this is how Russell finds himself, sitting alone in his car at 40, with no partner, no job, no superannuation and no prospects. Despairing and directionless, wondering exactly how he's going to rebuild his life, his work and his bank balance. And then, inspiration strikes. And it arrives by way of one of his bandmates, Warren. 
he had actually gone on sale of the century. And at the end of his third show, he picked the two cars off the board. And you walk up onto the podium with Glenn Ridge and Glenn says, well, are you going to come back and play again tomorrow night and risk losing the cars? Or are you going to take the cars and go home? And I just thought, oh my God, you know, could this be me? Could I do what Warren did? It's hard to fully impress upon people born after the reign of Sale of the Century just exactly how big a phenomenon the show was. The elaborate descriptions of fountain pens, the allure of the holidays and the cars that were on offer, the size of a jackpot that could swell to hundreds of thousands of dollars. For 21 years, it was an unrivaled force on Australian TV. People had always told Russell that he should try out for sale, and he always had his answer ready-made, Listen, Russell, you're really great at this stuff. You should go on Sale of the Century. And I would answer with my vow. I would say, no, I've made a promise to myself. I'm never going to put myself under that pressure again. But it's been 25 years since he'd put himself under that amount of pressure on the BHP high school quiz. And now Russell sees that this could be his only ticket out of a deep creative funk and out of debt. Sale of the Century? It was kind of like Russell's version of a retirement plan. I thought, at least I might be able to buy a place to live. Oh, yeah, no, I, was, I wasn't going on there to live. I was going on there to set myself up financially. That's what I was going on for. I did not want to lose. So he overcomes his fears and he writes away to the show. And while he waits for a response, he gets himself back into the trivia training game. So I thought, well, I'll be taking advantage of this time. I'll be doing what I did in 1968 in high school. I'll be summarising World Book Encyclopedia again. I'll be buying Chambers Biographical Dictionary and I'll be going through every significant person of the last 300 years and finding out what year they were born and what year they were died. I'll be putting them on a tape and I'll be listening to these. I got to work. I thought, what's the best way to practice for being on the show. And I thought, well, look, what if I do this? What if I tape the show of Sale of the Century every night at seven o'clock, but I don't watch the show? Instead, I get up the next morning, I go for my swim, have a little coffee, I come home and I watch the tape of the show then. But I watch it with the pause button. It was a magic button. And I use the pause button to make sure that I can buzz in before the other contestants to answer the question. A year passes in this way. Russell plays every day, training from the armchair in his sharehouse lounge room, racking up more than 250 games. Finally, I got the call. Our former manager of the Castanet Club took the call at our agency and... Uh, She called me and she said, Russ, are you sitting down? I said, no, but I can be. And she said, she said, Russ, they want you for sale of the century. I had put hundreds and hundreds of hours into preparing for this. And now suddenly it was here. Sale was filmed every Wednesday in Melbourne. They tape five episodes in a day. There's a limo that'll take all the contestants to the studio. But Russell doesn't want to lose his focus and get mired in chit-chat. So he asks for special permission to sit in the front seat. They arrive at the studio, do a bunch of paperwork, have some lunch, and then the show begins. Russell isn't picked for the first couple of games that day, but just as they're about to start filming the third game, a producer walks over in his direction. And then the finger points to me. I thought, oh my God, 
it's BHP High School Quiz all over again. Here I am in this cold, cavernous, intimidating studio, you know, walking uh, to leisure forward, walking to the gallows. You know, it was that disconcerting and, and rattling. As he makes his way up onto the set, Russell's eyes adjust. Everything looks different from behind the contestant's desk. Glenn seems further away than he does when you're on the telly. You think he's very close to you, but he's far away. So you've got to adjust your sense of space to centre myself and to make myself present. I just made myself surreptitiously touch different parts of the set whenever I had a chance, you know, ground myself by touching and breathing deeply and regularly. And then it's happening. The lights are sparkling, the music strikes up. All on the world's richest quiz, Sail of the Century. And, now... and the host, Glenn Ridge, begins firing questions as Russell and another first-time contestant go up against the carryover champion. It was an incredibly nervous edge-of-the-seat game and this fellow was very good and he was beating me. He was coming in fast and I was coming in fast and we were getting a lot of questions wrong. And in one of the commercial breaks, Glenn kind of sidled over to us and he said, he said, listen, fellas, you're not making much of a game of this. You've got to stop coming in so quickly and getting so many points wrong. And here am I thinking deep in my deepest soul. I'm thinking, don't you tell me what to do, Glenridge. If I want to come in fast, I'm going to come in fast. I'm not going to lose this game. I was so determined. And gradually, I just managed to inch ahead, little by little. He would come in faster and faster. He'd get more wrong. I just held my nerve, and I ended up winning that game by 25 points. That was my first step. I'd done it. Russell goes up on the stage, and he wins himself a $26,000 jewel-encrusted necklace. He can take the necklace and run, or he can risk the necklace by choosing to play the next game. If he can win eight games in a row, he'll become a sale of the century champion and he'll walk away with all the prizes, plus a huge cash jackpot. And as he takes 10 seconds to ponder his next move, about a thousand expressions register across Russell's face. I really wanted to go home, but obviously I was not going to let myself. And I said, no, Glenn, I will come back tomorrow night and I will risk the pearl necklace. So the next night, of course, was, you know, 10 minutes away. You have to change your coat, your shirt, your tie. So it looks like it's a, a totally different night. And this is where I did start to come into my own. I won very easily the next two games of that Wednesday afternoon. By the time the the show wrapped up for the day, I'd won three games in a row. I'd won prizes that I couldn't remember. I'd thrashed people that I'd never see again in my life, but I couldn't remember a thing about it. It was just a blur. And then suddenly I'm in a cab to the airport. I'm on the plane back to Sydney. So I have to go back to Sydney for another week before I get a chance to come down and play my fourth game. Russell's learned a lot from that afternoon playing the game for real. Most of all, he realises that staying calm is paramount. So I made up tapes that enabled me to, as the pressure mounts, that my actual breathing gets slower and I become more relaxed and more focused the more pressure comes on me. The week passes. Wednesday finally rolls around again. And Russell's back on the plane to Melbourne. It's Groundhog Day. You're not any the less nervous. I'm in the front limo seat. 
not talking to anyone else. We get to the studio, we, you know, sign all the documents, we have lunch. I come down and I start my fourth show. All right, good luck, everyone. Here we go. Question number one, round one. Russell's up against two competitors named Jeff and Natalie. And from the start, it's clear this is going to be a close game. They're getting better opponents for me every time because they've seen the quality of the games I played the previous week. So they want close games. They're all neck and neck in the first round. But approaching the midpoint of the game, Jeff and Russell pull out ahead. Got a tie for the cash card here. Russell and Jeff both on $60. Great battle for the lead here. And the guy I'm playing against is very good. It's a very tough game. Going into the final ad break, Russell looks hot and flustered. There's only one question separating them. The final fast money is going to be the decider. Okay, let's hop into it. Russell gets a healthy start. Russell, 40,000. Yes, and then Natalie wins a few points. Natalie? Ledger? Yes, who's Russell gets a couple wrong. Jack Lennon, And then Jeff surges ahead. Jeff, New York City. Yes, what is the female? Jeff, Jimmy Carter. Yes, Jeff, Pacific. But then, in the final 20 seconds, Russell seems to go to another place. Russell, pressure cooker. Is a pressure cooker is right. Russell, eggplant. Yes, he looks completely at ease. Russell, he's buzzing and answering and buzzing again. In a bull market, Russell, upwards. Yes, Russell, time. Correct. And, and then he's won it. And once he clears that hurdle of the fourth game, something shifts. I win game five. You know, I am really settling in and coming into my own. Then I win game six. The prizes start accumulating. The above-ground pool, the ducted heating system. I win game seven. And now I'm thinking I've only got to play one more game and I'm going to win the jackpot. And then after I win the seventh game, all I've got to do is go up on the podium with Glenn and he'll ask me if I'm going to come back tomorrow night for the eighth game. And I will say yes. But when I look up to the podium, there is Glenn standing, but there's someone else standing with him. Then I realise it's Michael White. He's the producer and he's whispering to Glenn and they're glancing at me. So I think, what's going on here? Has something gone wrong? What's going on? I don't know. And then so Michael then starts to trot nonchalantly over to me. And he says, Russell, you know, every Wednesday we record five shows. Today, we've come up across a technical issue. We're only going to be able to record four shows today. So that show was your last one. You'll be going back to Sydney now. And of course, your heart sinks. That first week back in Sydney was so difficult to survive. I'm thinking, I don't know if I can do this again. Psychologically, I don't know if I can take this to come back in a week's time to play the one final show where everything is going to be at stake. Russell doesn't think this is a sinister move, but he also doesn't believe that there's a technical glitch. He knows how sale works by now. It's got echoes of early reality TV. The producers want drama, tension. More than anything, they need the games to be close. And Russell realises that they need time to go back to the audition rosters and find the brightest minds that they can to meet him there again next week for his final game. Do you think someone can sleep in this position? It just doesn't happen. You can't sleep, you can't eat. I start losing weight. Time stood still. 
I thought it's just an infinite length of time before I'm going to be on this show again. It's like a Dali painting. You know, I'm going to go towards the horizon and I'm never going to get there. But finally, with very little sleep, very little food, it comes around and I'm back on the plane to Melbourne to play one last show. Waiting in the dressing room before he goes on set for the last time, Russell takes 10 minutes to himself in the dressing room to mentally prepare. What's the soundtrack in your head in that 10 minutes? Well, I sat down there and I thought, well, look, I'm, I, it's OK, I'm getting centred now, I'm quieting my mind, it's all, it's all happening. And then I thought, look, I should probably, while I'm here, just um, try going through some of the lists of things that I know that I know just to get my brain into gear for the game. So, OK, what about uh, US presidents? Oh, 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 I can't remember any. Oh, OK, here we go. What, what about um, British monarchs from the beginning of the 20th century? And I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't remember But Russell's time is up. And now he has no choice but to walk out onto that set, try to bring his mind right into this moment, to slow down time and focus his attention. Can this editor from Victoria or this West Australian proofreader stop actor Russell Cheek of New South Wales from winning all the prizes and the cash jackpot Russell's up against a Victorian named Andy and Elizabeth, a contestant from WA. Right away, Elizabeth comes roaring out of the gate. She's very quick on the buzzer and she buzzes in and beats me to the buzzer on the first four questions. Then I'm in for the fifth question. What do we call a female fox? Russell. Vixen. Yes, the champ's off the mark. If I buzz in for a question, I really train myself to be able to just relax everything, relax my whole nervous system for the next three seconds to let the question pop in from Mr Brain to Mr Lips. Russell had used this tactic before, and often he'd accompany his three-second pause with an elaborate, flourishing hand gesture. And in this last game, he gets a question just like this. One of the first 45 RPM records released in Australia was which 1955 song by Bill Haley and the Comets? Russell. I thought, surely I must know this. Um, but the answer didn't come. I just gave myself the three seconds and... One. I just relax. Two. Rock around the clock. That's correct. Yes, up to $40. Increasing the lead to 19. Has so that was good. I was away. Russell's brow is furrowed in concentration. His hands are sweating. During a pause in play, he pulls out a white handkerchief to wipe down his buzzer. And, of course, along the way, there are temptations, prizes that Russell can buy using some of his points as spending money. Glenn and, and Joe Bailey tried to tempt me by offering me a lot of cash to buy um, gurney. There was a gurney hose for sale where you could wash down your, your driveway. And, of course, I didn't have a driveway. What if we went uh, $9 and $500 cash going no. once? No. $9 and $1,000 cash going twice? No. But there was no way I was going to... Um, I was going to take the bait. $9 and $3,000 cash for the last and final go. No. <laughs> I think we've got a no sale here. Thank you for I, don't, I don't know what to do. How can you knock back three grand, Russell? Um, $3,000 cash? That is no joke. Even if Russell loses the game, he'd walk away with that money. But he has to hold steady now. He can't afford to lose nine points off his score and risk the jackpot that waits just on the other side. So they continue, and the final who am I question comes up. 
And it was, um, I was born in 1922, died in 1986, and went to the bar, and I just buzzed. Admitted to the bar, Russell. And I don't know which two synapses bumped up against each other like, uh, like the uh, elements of an atom. And I went, Lionel, Lionel Murphy. Murphy. I am Lionel Murphy, so there you go. And I was so quick on that one, they didn't have time to, um, to switch cameras. Very, very quick. Russell's slightly ahead at this point, but it's still anyone's game. Then we come into the fast money, the final minute of fast money, and I still thought that if Elizabeth gets every question right in the fast money, it has been done, if she does that, she will still beat me by 20 or 25 points. So I've just got to knuckle down here and just total focus. 60 seconds up on the clock, and your time starts... Now, which city I do keep my focus. Elizabeth. London. Yes, who was But I never felt comfortable for the whole game. Elizabeth. Two. Yes, Sicily and Italy. Russell. Messina. Correct. Well, currency. Elizabeth. 66. Yes, right. Elizabeth. Africa. Yes, what is Then gradually I just turn the ratchet. From who? Russell. Cruise. Yes, what is the official language of Fiji? Russell. English. Yes, uh, from Ireland. Russell. Le Carré. Correct. Which country was Hamlet a legendary prince? Russell. Denmark. Yes. But when that final buzzer sound... The final point needed to win a contest is what point? The answer there is game match points. And I realised that I had won. You just see a year's worth of heavy mental charge just lift off me and I become a totally different person. very well, Russell. Congratulations. Look, relief comes first, but followed very closely on its heels by excitement. With some of those facial expressions, I wonder how you got there, Russell. It was a wonderful, a wonderful moment. What's it feel like? I've never seen that much money before, I can tell you. I had achieved my goal. The jackpot of money, I think I had a total of something like $160,000 by the time I added everything up. Unbelievable. In 1993? In 1993, it was a lot of money, almost enough for me to buy my apartment in Bondi Beach. You know, my mum had passed away many, many years before, but my dad... I called him and I said, I said, Dad, are you sitting down? He said, no, no, but I can be. So he sat down. I could hear the chair squeak on the phone and I said, Dad, I won. And you could hear the sense of his relief coming down the copper wires from Newcastle to Melbourne and he was so over the moon that I'd won. He just, uh, he just loved it. Did it change how you saw yourself, Russell? Oh, yes. Yes, it did. It gave me a lot of confidence in myself. And I was on a high for six months. Tradies and utes would dip their horns and wave at me. And, I mean, people had really enjoyed me on that television show. They loved it, just like BHP High School Quiz, because in some sense, you know, I had been myself on the show. You know, I tried to play in the spirit of the show, and people responded to that. You know, it's something that no one can take away from me that I achieved that. Russell Cheek still lives in the apartment that Sailor the Century built. It's been almost 30 years since he bought it. He's made changes, added another floor. 
but it'll always be home. Thanks for listening to Days Like These. We'd love it if you'd follow Days Like These on the ABC Listen app or your favourite podcast app so that you never miss an episode from us. And while you're at it, leave us a rating and a review. It helps new people find the show. Also, if you were ever at a Castanet Club gig or you've got your own game show story we just have to hear, you know we love a good yarn. Send us an email or a voice memo. Our address, dayslikethese at abc.net.au. Days Like These is hosted by me, Elizabeth Coolass. Our lead reporter is Pat Abud, and our season three reporting team includes Sam Wicks, Belinda Lopez, Anthony Scully, Melanie Tate, James Viver, John Chia, Meg Bolton, Taylor Gray, and Alicia Sometimes. Our researcher is Tamar Cranswick, and our digital team includes Andrew Davies and Michael Delaney. This episode was engineered by Simon Branthwaite, and the supervising producer was Kath Dwyer. Thanks, Kath. Our brilliant executive producers are Ian Walker and Rachel Fountain. And our theme song is Yeah Nah by the Gooch Palms, courtesy of Ratbag Records and BMG. Extra music by Russell Stapleton. See you next time. On the next episode of Days Like These... Newcastle law student Taylor Gray is up for the fight of her life. I walk in and I'm sitting at the back of the room and I thought to myself, wow, we're really here. We're really fighting over this. We're being dragged through the Supreme Court like by police. When will this end? The judge sits back down on her stand and and I was like, this is it. And I sat in the box for the first time in my life. That's next time on Days Like These. And while you're waiting, why not try out another great ABC podcast? Like this one. Hi there, Yumi Steins here, host of Ladies We Need To Talk. So Ladies We Need To Talk is a show all about busting taboos around sex, health and relationships. Basically, we want to talk about all the stuff that's kind of hard to bring up in real life. I would get goosebumps, I would get chills. I I found it really hard to resist it's super excruciating like I have like someone stabbing a knife up my bowel from how to deal with our last shot at pregnancy to why women's hair is such a big deal there are no topics we won't dive into head first I watch all the sexy movies on Netflix I'll be 90 this year. So join me on Ladies We Need to Talk. Find it in the ABC Listen app or from wherever you get your podcasts.